Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Today's Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people to Israel, of Israel, from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Our New Testament scripture is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him. You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will, be, will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. If I haven't got to meet you yet, um, I was just struck, struck by the joinings and, and the baptism and then hearing the words to David of, of God saying, I am going to provide for you. I am going to create a house for you, a kingdom for you. Just such a sense of, of God being gentle and, and like a father gathering us, gathering from, from babies to older saints, more experienced saints, let's say. It's just a wonderful, I hope you have that sense. I didn't anticipate it, but I hope you have that sense of God's provision, God's comfort in providing the family of God, in providing the Father's house, because that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about in the Gospel of John. We, uh, as some of you know, we just walk through books of the Bible, and it is in God's providence that we're in this passage on John 14 when we have a joining, and John 14 is all about dwelling in the Father's house and what that means. And Jesus is trying to explain to them what is about to happen. And they are distressed. They are, well, let's say it's a highly emotional time for them, for the disciples. They are incredibly confused. They have been following Jesus for maybe up to three years now, and he is seeing weirder and weirder things. He has said already that they're going to have to eat his flesh and drink their, his blood, and that was weird. And then, but now he is saying things like he's going to go away, and that he's even going to have to die, and Peter says, no way. I'm never going to let you die. I'm here to fight for you. So they're confused, they're, they're urgently wanting to protect him because remember who they think Jesus is at this point. They think he's the one they've been waiting for. 
He's the king who's going to defeat all of their terrible enemies, all of Rome. He, they have finally found the Messiah. And it's Passover. And they are ready to fight and take back Israel. We need to, I think, appreciate this because Jesus starts off by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. You are going to be troubled and confused, but take heart. Believe in me and what I'm about to do. So I want us to just be trying to appreciate the urgency of the context. To see that with such panic and distress, Jesus now wants to comfort them in talking about his father's house. So with that, let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would unveil to us your word, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would comfort our troubled hearts. We are in so many different places, some of us feeling weak and brokenhearted, some of us needing to be challenged in our hard hearts. Lord, speak now. Give us wisdom, encouragement. Give us love and humility to hear from you that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, he starts off the first two verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, first off, I want to say, I think a lot, a lot of us uh, may hear that, hear that verse, in my father's house are many rooms, and immediately think he's talking about heaven. And he's not. Okay? So, if that's surprising to you, let me try to prove my case. This is not about heaven. King James translation had it mansions. And, and sometimes it gets sentimentalized as, so he's talking about heaven and we're all going to be in these like opulent, luxurious houses of mansions and whatnot. That's just not what he's talking about. So let me see if I can convince you of that. First of all, we should always read the Bible like people talk about real estate. Location, location, location. We have to remember the context and we want to see where he's going to go. He is talking about his totally unthinkable death on the cross, which looms in the background of this meal. He is going to be talking about the Holy Spirit, that when the Holy Spirit comes, the Father and the Son will dwell among us. So there's a lot of talk about dwelling and prayer. And... He is trying to comfort them in what's going on. And the way he does that is that he talks about his father's house. That's where he's going. That's a surprising phrase, and it's a phrase that we've seen earlier in chapter 2. So some of you may know the famous scene, Jesus cleanses the temple, right? He clears them out. And in John, he says this. 
take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. We read, this is in chap- back in chapter 2, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed. He's referring to the temple in Jerusalem as his father's house. And he's referring to his own body, literal human body, as the father's house. I'm going to destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. Talking about his, what? Body. The body of Christ. So the Father's house, it seems, is the temple. The temple is that place where God uniquely would dwell. If you asked any Jew of the first century, where is God? They would not have said, oh, he's everywhere. Although that's true, they would have first said, he's in that building. In- that's where you go to find God, because that's where God dwells. That's where he abides. So that's the first clue, the way that the Father's house is used. Second clue is this word for rooms is a is pretty bad translation, unfortunately. Uh, it's a unique word. Used again in verse 23, and it's the only time in the whole New Testament that this noun is used. It's better translated as dwelling or places to abide. In verse 23, which we didn't hear read, we're going to come to it next week, but Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home is that word that's translated room. In our verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. Better said, in my Father's house are many places to abide. And the Gospel of John talks a lot about abiding. Abiding in Jesus. It's about having this personal relationship. A place to dwell. A place where God dwells. The third clue, so we've got my father's house, we've got this idea of rooms or dwelling places or places to abide. The third clue is this somewhat awkward phrase, prepare a place. What is he talking about? Why wouldn't he just say it in normal speech, prepare a place? Prepare a place is a way to describe preparing the place of the tabernacle or the ark or the temple. In the Old Testament, you prepare house that goes to the kingdom of David. You prepare the holy land. You prepare a place. In 2 Samuel, we heard it read, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. I will prepare a people for myself. I will prepare a place for me to dwell. I will prepare a kingdom to reign in and for David to reign. 
I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, we heard. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Talking in that context about David, but that, of course, gets fulfilled in Jesus. So to say he's going to prepare a place for us is to say he's going to prepare a place for us to dwell. Prepare, as one, one commentator said, a prepared people becomes a fitting, holy place for the dwelling of God as surely as the prepared in the time of Solomon. So with those three main clues, and then especially with the second part of the chapter, which we'll come to the coming, Jesus says he's going to go, but he's also going to come. He's not leaving us as orphans. He's going to come and be near us by the Holy Spirit. He's going to dwell with us by the Holy Spirit. He is talking about Pentecost. He's talking about when the Holy Spirit comes, we can say in a very real way, all over the New Testament, the church is the dwelling place of God. Where Jesus dwells, body, and so he's trying to, to me, this makes so much more sense of the larger context because he's trying to prepare them for what is about to happen. Happen. This unbelievably unpredictable resurrection of his then being ascended to the throne of glory. And then he says in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, again, the prepare a place business, I will come again and I will take you to myself. I think again he is talking about the spirit. The spirit of Christ is almost synonymous with Jesus himself. When he ascends, he is near us now by the Holy Spirit. We partake of him in this meal by the Holy Spirit. And, you, and then he says, and you know the way to where I am going. And if you're feeling a little confused, you're in good company. The disciples have no idea what he's talking about. As is often the case, they are especially confused now, but apparently they should know what he's talking about and they should know the way. Right? And so they ask him, How can we? We don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? They seem to be thinking, maybe they're thinking of some kind of battle strategy, how to defeat Rome, take back Jerusalem. We don't know where you're going. But he has just said, You're not going to be able to follow me. So they're confused because how can they fight with him if he could, they can't follow him? And then he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's this coming together of, of the where, the why, and the how. The where is the Father's house. The why is to prepare a place for us. And the how is the, the way there's a coming together for all of those in Jesus himself and the work he is about to do. The cross and resurrection, the ascension where he 
sit at the right hand of the Father and they send the Spirit that they may dwell with us. He is the way, the truth, and the life so that we may dwell with him. Now, this is a very important verse, a famous one. Maybe you're familiar with it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Some of you may be wondering, man, I knew Christianity was exclusive, and this is my proof. Christianity, you Christians just think you're so much better than everyone else. No one else can go to God but you Christians. It's all about you and your righteousness. That's not the point of the passage. You should notice that, for one, to say that Jesus is not the only way to the Father is just as exclusive as to say he is the only way to the Father. You can exclude what Jesus says and what Christians believe, or you can exclude what non-Christians say. There's no way to avoid exclusive truth claims. That's what I'm trying to say, basically. We're going to make them. If you say that everyone has a way to God, however they decide or feel strongly about it, that is a very exclusive truth claim. Because you're saying anyone who doesn't believe that is wrong. If you say everyone can go up the mountain to God, you are saying it's like climbing a mountain. Whereas we would say it's not like climbing a mountain, actually. It's like being at the foot of the mountain, lost and blind. I don't know which way is up or down, but Jesus has come down the mountain, hallelujah, and he alone can bring us And so, please do not get caught up with this, this maybe stumbling block for our culture. If we think about it a little bit, we will see. We can, you can hopefully sort of pull back that type of critique or argument because uh, it's just unavoidable in making some kind of exclusive truth claim. We should also notice that we... We hear no one comes to the Father except through me, and that sounds harsh. But if we assume that we have been cut off from God, if we assume that there's actually no way to God, who could, how could anyone ever climb this mountain? We should rejoice and sing hallelujah and say, there is a way. You can read this verse and say, Hallelujah, there is a way. We have been told it. We have been shown it in Jesus. So instead of just proclaiming his exclusivity, he's proclaiming that he really is Lord of all, open to all. Just as we saw this group join, as we heard from Paul in Galatians 3, there is neither slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. It's open to all because of the grace of Jesus. It's, in some ways, you could say, the least exclusive religion of all, because it is saying, literally, all requirements you need are the fact that you cannot bring any requirements to this. 
the resume you need is to say your resume is not enough. So if anything, it is the most inclusive because it depends not on you or your family or your background or your credentials. So let me try to sum up this, this, the bulk of this argument. And it's the first three verses are really, when Jesus says he is going, Jesus is going to the Father so that he can send the Spirit. That is the same action as saying Jesus is going to prepare a place for them. He will come to bring them to him. This is about the dwelling place of God which is in heaven, yes, in the body of Jesus, yes, and we have access to that now in the church. He is, remember, comforting them for what is about to happen. He is comforting them for the work he needs to do, prepare a place he has a lot of preparation to do, meaning he is about to be arrested and flogged and crucified, and then go out the other end of death to begin a new world. So he is talking about living in the Father's house. And I want to look now at the rest of this passage. I want to look at living in the Father's house, working in the Father's house, and praying in the Father's house. First, living in the Father's house, I am very struck by this passage and how he he just wants to give us so much confidence in who he is so much assurance remember let not your hearts be troubled he's trying to comfort them and so he says these astounding things if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him whoever has seen me has seen the father what? I mean, again, I don't know, maybe I say this too much, but it's just all over the Gospel of John. How could anyone say this? Remember, he is a good Jew. He is a monotheist. He is not a polytheist. God is in everything. God's in this bush. He's, in the, he's not that. He is a monotheistic Jew, and he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen God himself whom no one could see and live. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I am in the Father and the Father in me. This is the nature of Jesus' comfort. That you will be where I am And where I am is where God is. Does your faith take comfort in that? Do you have that sort of confidence? We can be sure that when we see Jesus, we see God. There's not some other part of God that he's not telling us about. Hebrews 1 describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus wants to give us confidence, assurance. He is greater than Moses, 
who could only see a bit of the back of God. He is greater than David and Solomon who built the temple and yet it was destroyed later. Greater than the temple itself. He is the place where heaven meets earth on Jacob's ladder. We may, we should have compassion on the disciples because he is saying nearly unbelievable things. And so either he is crazy and just making it up or if we believe this, we can have incredible confidence. It is hard to have too big a view of Jesus. Do you get that? It's hard to have too big a view of Jesus. And our struggle is that we have too small a view. They thought he was the Messiah who could defeat Rome, and their view was too small. How's your view? Oftentimes it's too small, isn't it? We're not sure if Jesus cares, wants to do it, is powerful enough. Living in the Father's house, we can have incredible confidence that we are in the presence of God. Working in the Father's house. As if the, disciples, the poor disciples, as if they're already not confused enough, he then says in verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works. I mean, the disciples must have been really confused. Greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. That's the key. Remember? Location, location, location. What is he talking about greater work? Because I am going to the Father. Why is, it in so, why is it so important that he's going to go to the Father? So that the Spirit may come. Why is it so important that the Spirit may come? So that the temple of God, remember, the temple right now in the Gospel of John is restricted. It's contained. It's glorious in the person of Jesus. Hallelujah, he has come. But it's only in this one human body. What's going to happen when he goes to the Father? He's going to send the Spirit. And the first, the first converts in Acts hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language. It's the reversal of Babel. In their own language, now they're going to get to spread throughout the whole world. So the greater works are the temple of God going global. Going global. That we have the same access to God right here in New Haven, Connecticut, as anyone does in Jerusalem. I've never been to Israel. I'm sure if... if I went, it would be powerful to see where these things took place. But it is not a Christian value to think we have to go there. This sort of pilgrimage, this sort of making memorials of the places, that didn't happen until hundreds of years later because the apostles didn't really care, it seems like. In Acts, they're preaching, they are witnesses of the resurrection. It's a new life. They're not worried about where his tomb was. Because he's not there anymore. 
The temple of God is going global. Greater works than what Jesus did. That gives incredible dignity, doesn't it? To the work of the church. And you may think pretty self-serving for a pastor to say that, but I could never say something like that if Jesus didn't say it. Greater works than what Jesus did is what is happening now by the Holy Spirit. So I think it's worthy to ask, do we take the work of the church seriously enough? Do we see that this is where the God will dwell, wants to dwell, wants to bring people into his temple, wants to, on earth as it is in heaven, reign. Nothing should really compare to the work of the kingdom of God in Jesus, right? Is that true for you? In your own heart, does anything compare to the work of the kingdom of God? I've heard from some fans of certain college basketball teams that they're glad they don't have to trust in March Madness because surely they cannot have such faith in that sort of work. Man, doing greater works than Jesus, it's a privilege, isn't it? To know that and to be a part of it. Living in the Father's house, working in the Father's house, And then praying in the Father's house. So let's talk a minute about prayer. And I hope it doesn't sound like, it probably does to most of us, it's a kind of letdown to talk about prayer. We have a very, I think, small view of what prayer is or meant to be. But when Jesus ends this passage, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What does he mean by that? Don't you want to know? What does he mean? Well, first of all, it's good to remember what the temple was for. The temple is built finally by Solomon, David's son. And if you were to go back and read Solomon's prayer when the temple is being finally dedicated and used... Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 says things like, Lord, we know you cannot be contained, but when we pray, hear us from this place. When we ask your forgiveness, forgive us from this place. When we cry out to you, hear us from this place. These promises about prayer is language about the temple. And in the other Gospels, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he then immediately says, anything you ask in my name, I will do it. In my name is replaced in the temple. In my name has replaced in the temple so that the assurance that Israel had when they went to the temple and they knew their sins were forgiven and they knew God would hear them, we now can have that same sort of assurance In Jesus' name. And not just in Jesus' name if we say that at the end of our prayer. So we can say whatever we want. And then we just end it with in Jesus' name. And therefore it will happen. It's not a superstitious magical formula. 
It's about the, the biblical way that the name is used. In Jesus' name means in Jesus' will. For the glory of Jesus, as he says, for the glory of the Father in the Son. So we have here, I think, amazing promise of access and glory. You can know every prayer of yours is answered. Sometimes it's answered with a no, but it is indeed answered. And if it's not answered in the way that we think, it seems like there's really only two options. Either that prayer would not have brought glory to the Father. It's not, in fact, in Jesus' name. Or we need to redefine how God gets glorified. I think sometimes when we hear these promises of prayer, ask anything, we think, that can't really be true, right? Or we think it's such a qualification, it's not really that great of a promise. Oh, I can only pray for God's will. Oh, great. How great could that be? Right? So I can't pray for a new car or a better job or a spouse that does what I want. So I can't pray for those things, but I can pray for God's will. Think about what you're saying. Think about what we know will bring God's glory. About what we know God already wants and asks of us. We know what? That he wants holiness and purity and trust and integrity. We know the fruits of the Spirit. If we were to walk according to the Spirit, Paul tells us what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. There's a few more. But even if you just stick with the first couple, if you say, like, if you feel like you're running out of things to pray for, do you realize you're saying, I've already done the fruits of the Spirit. I've already got that in all of my life. So I need something else to pray for. If you just stick with those nine fruits of the Spirit, that will leave you plenty to pray for. Right? Oh, to pray, we can read the Psalms. There's a whole book of prayers. We can read Paul's letters that often start with prayers. Don't think like you have to come up with some ingenious prayer on your own. God gives us the words. Put, put the words he's already given you into your prayers. Let those become your prayers. Prayers is always a indicative of what we believe. So if we really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to dwell in us, wants to make us new, to make us like Jesus, we would be praying for it a lot more. So we have these incredible, incredible promises. To live in the Father's house, to be dwelling with Jesus, this is the work that he has come to accomplish. He has said we get to do even greater works than that. Let's take a moment. Let's prepare our hearts to feast with him 
at his table as we get to see what it means to dwell by the work of Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.